All right. Um, I'm going to start. I'm just going to start by reading the first three verses by Luke chapter of Luke chapter 15. The first three verses of Luke chapter 15 says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable and another parable and another parable. When I used to read sections like this in scripture, like in my teens or in my early 20s, I would be excited. And here's what I'm excited about. There's a lot of moments in the Gospels where Jesus takes on the Pharisees or the religious elite of some sort of his day where he just takes them on and starts challenging them and challenging that what they were doing and saying. And when I was in my teens and in my 20s, I used to read these kinds of sections that would start off very similarly to how Luke 15 starts off, and I'd be excited. I'd be like, get them, Jesus, right? Like that, I'm like, yeah. Like now, I'm, I am a religious leader, right? I, I am. I know we don't like that word religious, but, but let me put it this way. Me and the Pharisees are both religious leaders that believe in the Bible as God's word. So now, when, uh, when Jesus, when I get to these sections in the Gospels where, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees or other religious leaders who believe in the Bible as God's word, and I see that Jesus is challenging them, it now makes me a bit nervous. I don't read it with the same get them, Jesus, as I used to. In fact, I'm a little bit like, maybe, let's go easy, Jesus. Like, like maybe it makes sense what they're thinking through. And, and so I'm, I'm just like, I, 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 but the other thing that I've started to do that I've just felt in like an additional, I would say, healthy weight of is when I get to these sections, I go, well, since I am a religious leader like they were religious leaders, is there something Jesus is saying that I need to listen to here? That for some reason, I'm prone to something as a religious leader. And so I get nervous now a bit when, Je- when there's these sections where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, there's two reasons. Uh, I, I, there's a second reason I get nervous, besides just the first reason being that I, I relate to the Pharisees and the fact that we both believe in the Bible and are trying to lead people towards God. The second reason I get nervous is because Pharisees, as I've studied the like, church history in the first century more, what I've learned about Pharisees is they're eerily similar to us. A lot of times we read the, the Gospels and we say, oh, the Pharisees, nothing like us. And like, no, they're the bad guys. We're nothing like them. But then as I've studied church history more, I've realized I think we're a little bit more like the Pharisees than we're, than we're willing to see sometimes. In fact, I want to read a quote. It's from a great historian, Justo Gonzalez. If you're ever looking for some good church history books to read, Justo Gonzalez has written two volumes of church history books and other probably uh, related church history books. Um, and this one comes from his volume one, uh, History of the Church or History of Christianity. And he's talking about the Pharisees and he's describing them. And I just want to read, it's a bit of a long quote, but I, I want to read it to help us see that, that we, I think, are a little bit more similar to the Pharisees than we realize at times. Uh, and, and as I read this quote, just know when he says Hellenistic or Hellenizing or Hellenism, that just means Greek culture, which was a huge influence on the Jewish people at that time. So here's what he says. He's talking about the first century Jewish people. He says, Jewish religion took different shapes and several parties appeared. 
The best known, both because the Gospels refer to it repeatedly and because later Judaism evolved from it, is the party of the Pharisees. They were the party of the populace who did not enjoy the material benefits of Roman rule and Hellenistic civilization. To them, it was important to be faithful to the law or the Bible. And for that reason, they studied and debated how the law or the Bible was to be applied in every conceivable situation. This led to the charge that they were legalistic. That may be true to a degree, but one must remember that by their emphasis on the law, they sought to make the faith of Israel relevant to everyday situations and to new circumstances under Roman rule and Hellenizing threats. Besides this, they held some doctrines such as the final resurrection and the existence of angels, which the more conservative Jews at the time declared to be mere innovations. When I read that, and this is not the only place I've read descriptions of the Pharisees by historians that sound like us, but when I read that, it sounds eerily like us. It sounds eerily like our church. In fact, I wonder if the Pharisees were out there saying, all of life is all for Yahweh. Like, I, I don't know. But it's the, there's the, when you begin to study the Pharisees, you begin to see, man, they're a lot like us. And so all that to say, when Jesus confronts the Pharisees, where I used to say, get them, Jesus, now I get a little bit nervous. Because one, I'm a religious leader, and two, they're eerily like us. We've been in this series in Luke chapter 15. In January, we've just been looking at chapter 15 of, of Luke, of the Gospel of Luke. And what we've been doing is we've been doing a, a character study through the third parable or the third story in Luke 15. In particular, looking last week, uh, this parable, it's famously called the, the parable of the prodigal son, but we've I've, I've said, hey, I think a better name for it would be the parable of two sons or the parable of two lost sons. Uh, and so as we've done this character study, well, the first week we looked at the prodigal son, this week, or last week we looked at the compassionate father, and then today we're going to look at this older brother character in this story. Here's what's funny to me about Luke chapter 15. Usually it's taught in this very evangelistic, come to Jesus type of way. And I think that's great. I actually love that it's taught that way because you see so many, so many beauties of God and his love in Luke chapter 15. But the whole reason Luke chapter 15 exists is because the Pharisees were muttering about Jesus hanging out with sinners. That's why I started off the sermon reading those verses. The, the Pharisees were going around, well, some translations say grumbling about Jesus hanging out with sinners. And so when we get to Luke 15 and we're going through Luke 15, we have to realize that if we're going to hear the message of Luke 15, we have to hear it in its context, which is a context in which Jesus is telling these stories in order to deal with the grumbling of the Pharisees. And so here's what we're going to do today as we're wrapping up this series. We're going to focus on the older brother part of the third story today. We're going to do a lot. We're actually, like I've said the last few weeks, we're going to be all through Luke 15. And so we're actually going to go through the first two parables and then the older brother part of Luke 15. And my hope is that we could hear these stories like the Pharisees would have heard these stories. 
Because again, a lot of times Luke 15, the way it's taught, is taught in a way that is not addressing the context or the reason why Jesus was telling these stories in the first place, which was to deal with the Pharisees' grumbling. So here's what we're going to do just structure-wise. We'll go through the first two parables, then we'll go through the older brother's part of the third parable of these stories that Jesus tells in response to the Pharisees. And then we're going to spend some time in three different questions. And my whole hope with these three different questions is to help us begin to hear the story the way that Jesus was meaning for the Pharisees in particular to hear it. Because that's why he's telling these stories is to deal with their grumbling and muttering. So here are the three questions that we'll go through. The first question is this, who does God show himself to be in these stories? The second question is, are you an older brother? And the third question is, are you going to follow Jesus into the lives of sinners? Okay, I'm going to take a quick drink. If this, uh, if this is your first week here, here in this series, uh, let, me, let me point a few things out about Luke 15, or maybe it could be your first time ever hearing Luke 15. Uh, here's what I want to say. So Jesus responds to the Pharisees in Luke 15 by telling these three different what he calls parables, which were just stories to illustrate true things about reality, about what he was doing, what God was doing in the world. And so these three stories, they act as metaphors pointing to real-life situations. Each story that Jesus tells in Luke 15 talks about something being lost and then it being found again. And the thing in each story that is lost represents any human out of connection with God. And then the one who finds the thing that is lost or receives the thing that is lost represents God in these stories. And then in the third story, the older brother he, he, that, that we'll look at today, he represents a religious person that's disconnected from God. Okay? So let, let's start. Let's read this first parable that Jesus told. It's in verse 4 of Luke 15 that Jesus told to answer and deal with the grumbling and muttering of the Pharisees. Here's, what, here's how he starts off. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who, who, who do not need to repent. All right, so, so Jesus, he starts off talking to the Pharisees, giving them a somewhat everyday situation for them. There was lots of sheep. There were lots of shepherds. And so he gives them this everyday situation. Now, here's what's kind of interesting. This is something we miss because we didn't live in the first century and we don't, we don't exactly uh, see what the first century hearers of this story would have seen is even the way that Jesus uses this particular example and frames this story is in and of itself a challenge to the Pharisees. So Pharisees saw shepherding work as dirty work. They saw it as unclean, as spiritually unclean work. It was something Pharisees would never have done themselves. Pharisees might even have owned sheep themselves because of their wealth or whatever, but they would always 
hire a servant to go out or shepherd to go out and find this lost sheep. And so even how Jesus starts off the story is a bit of a jab at the Pharisees. It's almost like Jesus is saying, who of you would not go out and find your sheep if you lost it and brought, bring it back home? And then it's almost like Jesus is saying, oh, that's right. None of you would do that. And then it's like Jesus is applying it to his situation of hanging out with the sinners and he's going, and he's saying, but I do that. And you have the audacity to question me about work none of you are willing to do. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, look at this thing that none of you are willing to do in your everyday life with sheep. It's very similar how none of you are willing to sit and eat and hang out with sinners. Just like you don't do either of that, I'm doing that. And you have the audacity to question me about it? Jesus is a brilliant teacher. Like he, he's God in the flesh. But I, I, sometimes we miss these moments where he's just brilliantly speaking to them and teaching them. Uh, he uses this everyday situation that perfectly fits why they're grumbling is an issue. Okay, so that's the first story. Let me, let me read the next story. Very similar to the first story. Verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this is very similar to the story Jesus just told. Instead, the situation is a home where a woman has lost one of her ten coins and she has to find it. Uh, scholar Kenneth Bailey, who I, I've suggested his book over the last few weeks, The Cross and the Prodigal, uh, I still suggest it, he notes that uh, this was a, uh, an everyday situation for, for uh, life in Israel. Uh, someone would lose a coin in their house. Their houses, because of how they were built, were really dark. And so even in broad daylight, it would be really hard to find a coin. And the foundations often were made of rock and had a lot of cracks in them. And so they had to really search for coins that they dropped that maybe fell into one of these cracks sometimes. Um, and, and it's very similar. It, it's the story about this woman who finds this coin and the whole community rejoices. Something else uh, scholar Kenneth Bailey notes is with these first two stories, I, he's specifically telling stories that both men and women can relate to. The, the shepherding work was a male work back then, and being at home, taking care of the home back then in the first century was, was female work. Back then, the men and women were much more separated. And so I love Jesus here, who knows he has listeners that are men and women, and he purposely tells two different stories that are essentially saying the same thing to include all of his audience of men and women. I just love that. So, so again, Jesus says this, this lost things being found are something to rejoice in. Okay, let's, let's move to the older brother part of the story. Let me give us a little bit of what happens on the front end of this third parable that Jesus tells. We spent the last two weeks in it. But here's how the, the third story goes. There is this father who owns a property who has two sons. 
the younger of the two sons comes to the father and says, can I have my inheritance now? Which would have been very much like saying, I wish you were dead. I don't trust you. I want to use this wealth for myself instead of for the good of the family. The father, though, says, okay. He gives the son the wealth. He goes off to a distant country. The younger son, he goes off to a distant country. He squanders the wealth in wild living. And then he comes back with his tail between his legs. And his plan is, I'll earn my way back in the family. But when the father sees the younger son, he doesn't make the younger son earn his way back in the family, which that would have been in that time the most merciful thing a father would do. If a son did this, squandered the family's wealth, went away, came back, the most merciful thing a father would do is say, okay, you can pay me back and earn your way back into the family. But this father doesn't do that at all. He's even wildly much more merciful in Jesus' telling. He sees the son, runs to the son, clothes the son, loves the son, and then begins to throw a feast for this prodigal son. He welcomes the son back into the family without the son having to do anything to earn his way back into the family. And then his older brother shows up. So let's read verses 25 through 32 again. 25 starts off like this. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has, has come, he replied, and, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, see, he has him back, safe and sound. The, old, the, the older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So the story, this third story that Jesus tells, the story of the two lost sons, it ends with an angry older brother and a compassionate father pleading with that brother to share the heart he has for his younger brother. And this is what Jesus does to answer the grumbling and the muttering of the Pharisees. So I want us to, like I said earlier, I want us to hear the story as if the Pharisees and first centuries listeners would have heard this story framed in this way. And so I want to ask three questions and just go through them one at a time. I'm asking them rhetorically, but I'm also going to be answering them for us to help us just understand what Jesus was getting at by telling these stories to these grumbling Pharisees. So the first question is this. Who does God show himself to be? in these stories. Who does God show himself to be in these stories? We've kind of talked a lot about that over the last few weeks. So if you want a deeper dive than this, go back, listen to those sermons. But just quickly, who does God show himself to be in, in these stories? In, in the first story, God shows himself to be a shepherd that's willing to travel into the wilderness to find his lost sheep. And listen, guys, 
That was, that was a big deal. For a shepherd to go off, off course into the wilderness to find his sheep, this would have been a very difficult journey. This would have like been hard for the shepherd looking for that sheep. I don't know if you guys have ever been off trail. I know we're not supposed to be off trail. But if you ever find yourself off trail, and I find a lot of people lost off of Fat Man's Loop, <laughs> off trail, as soon as you're off trail, it is a nightmare, okay? I don't know what happens on trail, like, oh, this isn't too bad, I'm just out of breath. You get off trail, like, everything's trying to kill my ankles now. Like, you're just like, I'm dying. This would have been way more off trail for a shepherd to do this. And the first century listeners would have known that. And so first, God shows us he's a shepherd who goes after his sheep and he's willing to pay whatever personal cost to find a sheep. Okay, second, God shows us that he is a woman looking high and low for a coin. This woman does all she can. She does all she can to find the coin. She lights the lamp. She makes sure, she, she makes sure that she finds it. Which thirdly shows us something about God. God sees humanity as valuable. In both of the stories, sheep represent people. Coins represent people. And in both of the stories, they are valuable to God. And God is working to bring them back into the fold, bring them back into his family. Both metaphors and the way that God uses them to talk to us shows us that God sees humanity as valuable to him. Too often, I feel like we, we act like God doesn't cherish us. Or see us as valuable to him. But when Jesus tells stories and uses metaphors for humans, the metaphor blatantly tells us that he sees humanity as valuable to him, even the worst that humanity has to offer are people that are valuable to him. Fourth, God shows us that he's a compassionate father. He's willing to pay any cost to celebrate his son, and he welcomes his son with lost arms. We talked in depth about that last week. And then fifth, we see that he's a God that invites all that are in his presence, all that are in the family of God, to come and rejoice in God's work of loving and searching and finding and welcoming his children. That's who Jesus says God is. And Jesus should know because he's God in the flesh. And so that's who Jesus says God is. And that's what he wants to make sure that the Pharisees know. That God is a hardworking shepherd that cares for his sheep. That he's a hardworking woman who is looking for the lost coin and finds it. And that he's a compassionate father who welcomes his son home and invites all to the feast. That's who God is in Luke 15. And yet, to me, anecdotally, it seems to me, at times, there's resistance to that picture of God from Bible-believing Christian leaders. There's resistance to reflect a God like that in our churches. Jesus tried to correct the Pharisees' misunderstandings about who God was. Will we let God correct our misunderstandings? Okay, second question. This chapter asks us, the second question is, are you an older brother? 
Are you an older brother? When you look at the story of the older brother, are you an older brother? I, I, I told you we're doing a bit of a character study, so this is a bit more of the character study of the older brother right now by asking this question, are you an older brother? Uh, if you remember from last week, we talked about uh, the first century listeners, when they heard this third story about these two sons, they would have seen the older brother in the story and they would have seen all of the social issues with this son, the ways that he was uh, sinning in a, in a social way, in a social category for them at that time. They would have seen all kinds of issues with the older son. They would have saw he was very insubordinate. They would have saw that he probably didn't work for reconciliation between the younger son and the father, which was his duty as, as the oldest son. And they would have seen that he had just as much disconnection from the heart of the father as the younger son did. It just shows up in different ways. And so the first century listeners to Jesus, they would have listened to this story and they would have known that Jesus was making a point. That it was not just the prodigal sons who are disconnected from God, but the older sons too. Which definitely represented the Pharisees. The older sons and Jesus' use of the older son in in that story shows that even a very religious, Bible-believing person can be just as disconnected from the father as the prodigal son, if not more. One thing to notice in Luke 15 is there's a kind of a pattern in the three stories. All three share this pattern, but then the third story, the third parable, the pattern breaks a little bit. The pattern is this, a sheep is lost, then found, the community rejoices. A coin is lost, then found, the community rejoices. A son is lost, then found, the community rejoices. Except for one, the older brother. And the father, he goes out to the older brother and pleads with him to share his heart that he has for his younger brother. And he he even offers the older brother or lets the older brother know that he has the same abundant love for him as he does for the younger brother. And that's how the story ends. The, the older brother furious and the father pleading with him to change his heart. Kenneth Bailey notes that this part of the story, this parable, it's missing like the resolution. It's missing the climax. And it's because Jesus is doing what he often does when he teaches, is he's wanting the listeners to apply the story to their lives. The Pharisees needed to realize that they were out of connection with God too, and Jesus is leaving the end of the story in their hands. Whatever the older brother's response to the father's pleading is, he wants to be lived out through how the Pharisees respond to Jesus' story. So I ask again, are you an older brother? Now, I want you to know, I feel like our church is not full of older brothers. I love our church because I I feel like we very much are not full of a bunch of older brothers. But I feel like I, to preach this text well and so that we can hear the message that it's really speaking, I feel like I have to ask it that way. I have to ask you, are you an older brother? Can you examine yourself in a way to see if you are an older brother? Because I think Jesus, even 2,000 years later, wants this in his word so that those of us can read and go, am I one? 
I need to change the ending of the story. I need to, I need to have a resolution to my older brotherness part of the story. I need to not be that way anymore. The older brother, he is self-righteous. He's blind to his own disconnection with his father, which means that religious Bible-believing people can be self-righteous and blind to their own disconnection with God. Law-breaking or sinning, in this story at least, seems to come from either wanting God dead or cut out of our lives like the younger brother did, or by fooling ourselves into thinking we've never done any wrong and we're perfectly righteous, and thus, by having that sort of attitude, we have disconnected ourselves from God the same way the younger brother did. Both sons in this story are disconnected from God. So church, I have to ask, are you so blind by your self-righteousness that you've become an older brother without realizing it maybe? I think one sure sign of this is how you judge sinners. If you just look at the story, if you look at the context, if you look why the story exists, I think one sure sign that you might be drifting into some older brother tendencies is how you judge sinners. Are there sinners that you refuse to associate with because their sinning in particular is evil to you? Now listen, anytime a pastor, anytime a pastor asks a question like that, I know what's happening in your heads. You got all your caveats, right? You've got about six proverbs going through your mind right now where you're trying to combat what I'm saying. Listen, uh, there, there is certainly wisdom for who we as uh, Christians surround ourselves with. For instance, if, if you have a drinking problem, you probably shouldn't hang out with people with, with a drinking problem. But that's not what me or Jesus are talking about here, and you know it. He's challenging the older brother types of his day to see that they are completely missing the heart of God and they're using their own self-righteousness to do it. So are we older brothers? Can we see it in how we judge sinners? Let me ask you this to help you flesh that out. No, not me, Anthony, I'm great. Let me ask you a question. Who would you be bothered by if Jesus lived here with us, who would you be bothered by if he hung out with them regularly, loved them, fellowshiped with them? Or you know what you're saying in your head? No, no, I would be, yes, Jesus. I, I would learn Hebrew so I could talk to him. Like, like the, this is, you, the, no one, there's nothing Jesus could do to bother me. Okay, I don't really believe you. Well, let, so let me ask you this. What, what what kind of sinner or person would it take for me to hang out with where you would start to judge what kind of pastor I am? No, no nobody, nobody. Okay, okay. What kind of people or what kind of group of people would it take for you to judge me for starting a small group with them? I think we all got somebody. We all got somebody that if our pastor or Christians we respected started a small group with or hung out with regularly, we would kind of judge that person. It could point to the fact that we've all got some older brother tendencies in us. If not, 
outright are an older brother and have missed it and have not seen that we are? Are you an older brother? Has your self-righteousness blinded you to your disconnection from God? Are there sinners that you disdain? If any of that is true about you, what are you going to do about it? Is what Luke 15 challenges you with. What are you going to do about it? All right, this leads to the third question that I have for us. Are you going to follow Jesus into the lives of sinners? Are you going to follow Jesus into the lives of sinners? Jesus hung out with real, actual sinners. Jesus hung out with people that society thought were sinners, but weren't actually. Well, everybody's a sinner, but you get what I'm saying. Jesus hung out with people that their society saw as unclean, which put them in a similar category as a sinner. And Jesus even hung out with Pharisees who were actually very sinful, but they were so self-righteous that they didn't think they were sinners and a lot of society didn't think they were sinners. So my question is, are you going to follow Jesus into the lives of sinners? When Jesus was here, he had relationships with sinners. He had friendships with sinners. It's very clear in the Gospels, he had a ton of meals with sinners. And I think he probably had some parties with sinners. There's a few mentioned in the Gospels. And so if you're here and you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, someone who's trying to live like Jesus but in your shoes, it means that we have to follow Jesus where he goes. And where Jesus goes in the Gospels, when God took on flesh, he goes into the lives of sinners. So that means you and me, we should have meals with sinners. We should have relationships with sinners. And don't do that thing to me like, we're all sinners. Of course, my whole Christian small group are sinners. No. You need to have meals with people who are against Jesus. You need to have meals with people who don't believe in Jesus. You need to have meals with people society sees as sinners. That's what Jesus did. If we're going to follow him, If we're really going to be disciples of him and use that word the way it's meant to be, that means you and I need to have meals with sinners. The the religious elite of our day, whoever they are, they might look at us and grumble because of who we have meals with if we're following Jesus. And the reason we, we can just ignore their grumbling or, or do this so freely is because we know we were a lost sheep once. We were a lost coin once. We were a lost son once too. So then when we're hanging out with other lost sheep, lost coins, lost sons, we have a lot in common. The only difference is by God's grace and mercy, he's connected us back to his love instead of living lives disconnected from his love. Uh, years ago, I was, a, I was a volunteer youth pastor uh, in my early 20s. And I would foolishly tell my teens in the youth group things like this. 
that, that, that God had created them to, to be uh, image bearers, displayers of him, proclaimers of the gospel, and so that they would, they do not need to fear the sinners in their classes. They can be in relationship with them. And it got our youth group into a good handful bits of trouble, okay? <laughs> a few parent conversations here and there, like, my kid said you said this, and I'd have to be like, I did. And I, I'll be honest, like, I wish I could go back and have a bit more wisdom with how I discipled our teens into that stuff. But I'm not a youth pastor anymore. I'm an adult pastor. <laughs> I want to get you guys into the good kind of trouble. I want to get you guys into the good kind of trouble. I want us following Jesus so closely that we're having meals with sinners and the religious elite, maybe other churches, look at our church and judge us and say and grumble, they hang out with this kind of a person. They hang out with that kind of person. When I visit their church, we see that kind of a person there. I want that to be true for us because that, I think, is what it means to truly follow Jesus. We follow him into the lives of the people he cares about. When it's all said and done, I want to feel sure that we were following him and not just playing a religious, self-righteous game or talent show. Luke 15 is Jesus' unabashed heart for the religious elite, uh, for, heart for whom the religious elite of his day labeled as sinners. Will we let Luke 15 connect us more to the heart of God by allowing him to put us into the lives of sinners? Or will we just be a bunch of older brothers that say, no, we're not? I'll let you guys decide. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this picture of your love in Luke 15. It is really, really, really astounding to think that your son came and just taught this and interacted with the religious elite in this way. I love seeing uh, the courage of your son, the compassion of your son, the pleading of your son with us, God. God, I'm glad that you made sure it made its way into your word so we 2,000 years later could hear it and hear whatever message we need to hear from it as well. God, I pray this, I pray you give our church a ministry that's like Jesus' ministry. I pray that we are shepherds and women that look for sheep and look for lost coins. I pray that any part of the older brother in all of us, you just get out of us. That we notice it and we repent. That we notice it and we turn away. I pray that you give our, heart, or our church a heart that matches your heart. God, I pray right now, God, that you keep us from self-righteousness, that you would humble us. Holy Spirit, I don't know how you want to work that out. I don't know how you want to do that, but I pray that you would protect us in that way. And however, God, you want us to be in the lives of sinners, I pray that we're there. I pray that we grow a heart that cares about the world the way that you care about the world. 
God, you know what you want to do with your word this morning. You know what you want to do in this room. I ask that we as a, as a church body would just see the effects of your word this morning. God, we love you. We need you. Thank you, Father. Amen.